This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about things that grow and things we find. In particular, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and how it is like things that we grow and things that we find. In the last episode, I harked back to the first episode of the podcast when I talked about the great doubts, or at any rate, the great difficulties, intellectual difficulties that sparked my rediscovery of the faith. Well, it was weird to me that right after that, the podcast immediately talked about angels in heaven seeing a vision of Our Lady crowned with stars. It felt jarring to me going from a place of skepticism to a place of total acceptance of a wild supernatural vision of angels in the sky. Anyway, I wish that I could be talking about what I'm going to talk about now back then. Back then I said, while the book of Revelation shows the kingdom of God existing with starry crowns in heaven, Jesus, we will see, likes to compare the kingdom of God to gardens slowly sprouting and seeds being sowed. Ultimately, the power of God is quiet, subtle, and relentless, not a violent rending of the world. End quote. So let's go back and do this right, shall we? We'll go back to that wild supernatural vision of angels in the sky, but with a little bit different sensibility. And to start, let's read the Gospels. These are the parables right after the parable of the sower. This is Matthew chapter 13, the parable of weeds among the wheat. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. The Parable of the Mustard Seed Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The Parable of the Yeast He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. The Use of Parables All this Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Three additional parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into vessels and threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where men will weep and gnash their teeth. Meanwhile, in Mark, we hear, quote, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. End quote. Okay, so let's reset a little the vision of heaven we started out with back when Our Lady of Guadalupe was appearing to angels in a throne room. When we looked at the Our Father, you'll recall, we reset the vision of the Father and the angels as existing above us, since what is above me would have been below the feet of the apostles in Jerusalem. If human beings used to think heaven existed up above our heads, a heliocentric view of the solar system makes that impossible. You'll recall, even Augustine, in a time when people still thought that the earth was the center of the solar system, said that above was not literal. God is everywhere, or better, he's outside of space and time, so he is always accessible in the same way at all times and places. That's what the scriptural references mean when they speak of him. As the book of Sirach puts it, God, quotes, plums the depths and penetrates the heart, their innermost being he understands. Perennial is his almighty wisdom. He is from all eternity one and the same, with nothing added, nothing taken away, end quote. That's sort of an abstract way of looking at it, kind of a philosophical way of looking at it. But God has given people visions that allow them to reach the same conclusion in a more poetic, visionary way. This is how Isaiah describes it. Quote, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. End quote. So that's a vision of what God would be if we saw him unveiled. He's the ground of being, philosophically, but the best way to think of that, apparently, since it's the way he himself recommends, is to think of him enthroned on high, on the move, surrounded by powerful angels who worship him. This is telling us something very true. God is outside time. He's attended by angels. He is unbearably great and mighty. But if Isaiah's six-winged angels sound strange, be assured there's other descriptions of heaven that call it more like a house or the new earth. So it's not going to be something foreign and strange. 
What Isaiah's vision shows is God's power and centrality. But in addition to the philosophical way and the visionary way of seeing him, each of which does tell us the truth about God, there's another way, the naturalistic way. For God to be real, he has to be not just a designer of the world, but the sustainer of the world. I think I described it before by saying my dad was a little more open to God after seeing my uncle Chris's computer. My uncle was a pioneer in artificial intelligence. He showed us an early version of artificial intelligence, and my dad realized that even artificial intelligence has to have a computer programmer. But it needs more than that. It needs a power source. We need a creator, a programmer, but also we need a power source. God is both. So naturalistically, Psalm 104 kind of unites both these things. It anthropomorphizes God a little bit, for sure, but it accurately reflects what happens at each moment. So here's Psalm 104. You founded the earth on its base to stand firm from age to age. You wrapped it with the ocean like a cloak. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. You give drink to all the beasts of the field. On their banks dwell the birds of heaven. From your dwelling you water the hills. Earth drinks its fill of your gift. You make the grass grow for the cattle and the plants to serve man's needs, that he may bring forth bread from the earth and wine to cheer man's heart, oil to make him glad and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars he planted on Lebanon, and the birds build their nests. On the treetops the stork has her home. End quote. There are a lot of beautiful passages that sound a lot like that in Job and Sirach, throughout the prophets, and they all do the same thing. But here I submit to you that these words are the same as the vision of God that we see both philosophically and visionarily. They describe God's action as personal and purposeful, as originating outside of time and space. God in his vision is active at every moment in our natural world by his presence, power, and grace. He's acting in everything around us, even though he is totally outside of it. So the kingdom of God, his court and stronghold and rule is like a garden or a tree. How so? Jesus Christ is the final and eternal king and ruler over all the world, the ultimate example of all the kings he has sent before him. First it was Adam, who had dominion over the animals and was called to tend the Garden of Eden as a symbol of the world as God intended it. Next was Noah, meant to gather the animals and preserve them through the flood, who saw hope in the olive branch. And then came Abraham, who staked his claim and called on God by planting a tamarisk tree. Then came Moses, who spoke to God in a bush, a burning bush. And eventually came David, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, whose kingdom is to last forever. The kingdom, in other words, is all about restoring the order God gave to creation. We succeed by cooperating with God's law, his logic, the logic of the universe, and we fail whenever we try to inhibit or thwart his law, his will. It's interesting to note that when Moses saw God revealing himself in the burning bush, God said he was standing on holy ground. Man had not stood on holy ground since Eden. Now he was on holy ground again as God revealed his name. I am who am. God is existence itself. I love that. I recently heard a talk by Vince Eimer of a trip he took to the Holy Land. 
He was able to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built over the place where Jesus was killed and buried. He got to spend an hour uh, he got to spend a four-hour period in Christ's tomb and described how he was given the gift of four hours of prayer, being flooded with peace and calm, something that had never happened to him before. He said they got to pray in the tomb, and it was just overwhelming to him. It somehow captured his uh, heart and imagination. Later at the church, he came to a place in that church where there's a gap in the floor and a place you can touch a stone on the ground So you're touching the holy ground where Jesus died. Vince said he put his hand on the stone and was flooded with the same peace he had in those four hours of prayer. Only now he was also flooded with this sorrow, this deep sorrow that made him start sobbing such that he was a little bit embarrassed and had to kind of separate himself from the group. He just couldn't stop crying. He was experiencing, I think, what Isaiah experienced in that grand vision, only he experienced it simply by touching the ground. The same power of God that Isaiah saw envisioned as a throne, or as we saw originally as Our Lady appearing starry crowned in front of angels, is what we feel and what we see in the very power that's present in the heart of all things, in the heart of the earth even. All of which brings us to the parables today about growing things and finding things. First, we're going to talk about the things that we grow. Jesus gives three examples here, and I think it's telling what three things he chooses. A field of wheat. So this is a one-year example. The time it takes to grow a field of wheat is a year. And he talks about having to work through the four seasons with the aim of harvest time at the end of the year. Then he gives the example of a tree, a shrub that's tree-like. Trees are years-long realities, right? Rather than growing up yearly, they grow up, get stable, and stick around. Rather than simply being consumed, a tree provides a place here in this story for birds. This is also a mustard tree, which uh, which was used for medicinal purposes. The last thing that he uses as an example of growth is yeast. So this is an hours-long reality. The yeast lasts a matter of hours, a few days. But in each case, the thing which is growing is growing for a reason. The wheat to feed us, the tree to heal us, and the yeast to make bread feed us better. So this is Jesus's vision of the kingdom of God. And And it's not the God of truth, philosophically. It's not God and his majesty enthroned above. It's God in the very nature of what he gives us every day. It isn't a kingdom that comes suddenly. It's a kingdom that that unfolds like blades appearing on the earth, sap filling the branches of a tree, dough silently rising under a cloth. It's also not a kingdom we get right away. We kind of have to engage with his ideas to understand what a kingdom that is like a plant might be. So it involves us. And each of the ways he compares the kingdom involves us too. You'll notice that in each case, God does all the work, but the human being seems to get the credit. Farmers don't grow things, they plant things, but they get the harvest. Bakers don't make dough rise, they knead yeast into it, and it rises. And if you find a treasure or a pearl, or if you fill a net, 
you didn't create the valuable thing. You just happened to be in the right place at the right time, working and attentive. Well, this solves so many problems. These parables make it clear that we have to work for the kingdom to come about, but that it isn't our hard work that makes it come about. It isn't our dedication to being as efficient as possible that makes the kingdom come about. But it does come from our hard work. In this way, it functions as an explanation of how grace works. Grace is a free gift of God. It's a supernatural principle of growth, if you will. We don't earn grace. We just cooperate with it or not. Just like a farmer doesn't earn his rainfall and sunlight and whatever biological reality in the seed causes growth, but he cooperates with these things. Just like a merchant of pearls doesn't create a pearl's value, he merely recognizes it and then benefits from it. So Jesus is telling us parables now not to obfuscate or hide anything, as was suggested when we looked at the parable of the sower, but to make things clear. In fact, he describes it this way. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So what is he revealing in these parables? For one thing, all of these parables are against instant gratification. If you want bread now, you needed to have started making it this morning or further back. You needed to ground the flour or further back than that. You needed to sow the wheat in the field where it grew with the weeds. There's no such thing as instant gratification in the spiritual world. Where does that leave us? It means we have some time. We have a choice to make our lives what they ought to be. But it also means we have to start. You'll never get bread later unless you sow now, then reap, then grind, then add yeast. You'll never be a saint if you don't pray and listen now. Our Lord says that the Son of Man will send his angels who will throw some into the fiery furnace and make others shine like the sun. That's a poetic way to say it. A less poetic way to say it is that you have free will. You can choose God or reject him. If you reject God now, you will be alienated from the very source of being for all time. You have no spiritual bread and no spiritual healing. So the parable is telling us nature's growth is constant, not spasmodic, not frantic, not hurried. Nature's growth is inevitable. Nature's growth is headed toward an end, a harvest. Nature's growth takes patience. Nature's growth means that there's always hope for spring. It's the same with God's grace. It's constant, inevitable, headed to an end, but takes patience. And there's always hope for us to, if we cooperate with it. So those are the things that grow. What about the things that we find? At first, it looks like there might be instant gratification in discovering a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price. So let's look at those parables next. The parable of the treasure hidden in a field actually sounds a lot like the previous parable about the farmer who sows in his field and works it. Only the farmer gets his treasure after a lot of work. And here we find somebody who is apparently working on someone else's land and gets lucky. He finds a treasure. His response, however, is the critical thing. He gives what he can to buy it. 
In both cases, Jesus says we can find him and his kingdom right here in our daily life if we only dig for him. When we do, he's worth everything we have and makes everything we have worthwhile. Or maybe we haven't found him in our day's work, like the man digging in the field. Maybe we are like the merchant searching for fine pearls. We looked for him in our careers and our own expertise. We looked for him in our politics and passions. We found them all disappointing. But then, like the merchants, our search ends and we redirect everything, our careers, our know-how, our politics, and our relationships to him. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all he has and buys it. The merchant prioritizes God once he finds him. In other words, the merchant pays a lot for the pearl of great price. This reminds me of a friend of mine who was a financial expert in New Haven, Connecticut, and later moved to the Midwest. I visited him and saw his enormous house in the best possible location, and I thought of his life the way I think of my own circumstances. So I would never get a house like that without finding an amazing deal and some kind of extraordinary circumstance, like an auction, being in the right place at the right time to get this thing. So I asked him, how did you get this house? He said, I gave them a lot of money and they gave me the house. So that's what the merchant did. He didn't just pay for it with money he had though. He had to go and give up everything else in order to have enough money to purchase the pearl. So the point is he staked everything he had for the kingdom. Americans, I think, instinctively understand this kind of risk-taking and how worthwhile it is. We had a world-renowned accounting professor who taught at Benedictine College for several years. A comment he gave to our alumni magazine struck me. He said, quote, What I love about Benedictine is the passion of the lay adult people who work here people who could work in other environments and make more money. Instead, they bet everything on their faith and try to contribute. That doesn't exist in Europe at all. It's completely gone, end quote. Perhaps it takes an accountant to see the true beauty of that trade-off in which God is an asset that balances any expense. Jesus drives this point home in his three images of people who bet everything on the faith and divest themselves of material attachments to gain a greater reward. There's the man who sells everything to buy the field. There's the jeweler who forsakes all his jewels for a single pearl. In both cases, they give up their livelihoods for the sake of the gospel. And then the gospel becomes their livelihood. The treasure and the pearl will only sustain them if they barter with it. The gospel will only sustain them if they continue to give it away. The third way to get the kingdom of God is through an open mind combined with hard work. Jesus here is explaining how grace and change work in the kingdom of heaven. The farmer will sleep and rise night and day, and through it all the seed would sprout and grow, he knows not how. Of its own accord, the land yields fruit, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Elsewhere, Jesus describes a seed dying so that it can rise. So it is with virtue. We have to suffer and get encouraged for the good and discouraged for the bad over and over again. And slowly but surely we grow. 
It's clear in Jesus' image of the mustard seed who is responsible for the change, and it is not us. We bring the smallest amount of faith to the process and His grace, which comes to us in confession, in the Eucharist, in times of prayer, in acts of mercy and love, shapes us a little more each day, often imperceptibly. So we can take hope in what Jesus says. We can change, and so can our loved ones. However, change does not happen suddenly. It can take years. But Jesus' advice is not meant only for individuals because we don't exist only as individuals. We exist in community with others. And the readings tell us that societies can change, cultures can change, with God's grace in God's time. We may think of our own culture today as terribly decadent. But it is important to realize how Christian values have already made it a much better place than it would have been without Christ. In the United States, our medical care is a beacon to the world. Our service to others helps the downtrodden all over the world. Even the virtues that we sometimes exaggerate and follow to a fault, like tolerance and non-judgmentalism, are Christian virtues. For those worried about the way the world has gone, Jesus says, hold on. The kingdom of God is coming, bringing untold blessings with it, unfolding one bud, one leaf at a time. And make no mistake about it, the church itself is in terrible pain right now, in large part because we are not open to the kingdom. There are too many weeds among us, and too few of us will give up what we need to in order to gain the kingdom. In a vicious circle, bishops and priests hide in bureaucracy and ignore the worst of all possible sins, which is now the definitive sin of our times, the loss of the sense of sin. They don't want to give up their piddly treasure for the real treasure. The laity do exactly the same thing, relishing their pet sins and sidestepping the hard truths that would make the world uncomfortable. The laity are not passing the faith on to their children, and the institutional church is doing less than the minimum to inspire or challenge them. The fruit of this giant abdication of the people of God is death. Bodily death in the suicide rate that is spiking emotional death in the skyrocketing rates of loneliness, anxiety, and addiction, and spiritual suicide as we turn to the flesh and the devil instead of God for relief. In the giant vacuum created by this failure, the world we are responsible for is turning to destructive ideologies that promise money, sex, or power, but deliver scarcity, sterility, and slavery. Into this sad situation, Christ calls the church to attention, saying, I will announce what is laying hidden from the foundation of the world. The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field, he said. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds all through the wheat and then went off. When they sprout, the servants want to pull up the weeds, but the householder says no. As Jesus explains later, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the fiery furnace. This is a breathtaking call to faith for each of us. Jesus Christ himself tells us not to look at the world as a battleground between good guys and bad guys, but between an all-powerful God, the householder, and an enemy who prowls in the dark. Since this is God's battle, it is not our job to root out evil on our own. We are to wait for Jesus Christ to do it. Our job isn't to complain and carry on about the weeds. 
Here we have a direct application of the teaching that God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. St. Jerome said, quote, The Lord warns us not to pass a hasty judgment on an ambiguous world, but to reserve it for his judgment. We should not hastily cut off a brother, since one who is today corrupted with an erroneous dogma may grow wiser tomorrow and begin to defend the truth, end quote. St. Augustine is quick to point out, however, that this does not exempt us from the spiritual work of mercy of admonishing the sinner, including penalties from the church, which are administered, quote, with tenderness, not for his rooting out, but for his correction. He says, quote, Therefore, let a man gently reprove whatever is in his power. What is not so, let him bear with patience and mourn over his affliction, until he from above shall correct and heal, and let him defer till harvest time to root out the tares and winnow the chaff. Quote. And that's where the church comes in, or fails to, as the case may be. St. Peter Chrysologus sees both the corn and the mustard tree of today's reading as growing in the same garden. Quote, the church is a garden extending over the whole world, tilled by the plow of the gospel, fenced in by stakes of doctrine and discipline, cleared of every harmful weed by the labor of the apostles, fragrant and lovely with perennial flowers, end quote. This is a beautiful image that applies to each of us in the church. This is also why sins of omission are so dastardly. We all know what happens to an untended garden. There's one in my yard right now. My children planted it and then they neglected it. Weeds took over, leaving their plants to fight for sun, water, and nutrients. Their failures to erect boundaries for it means now it looks just like the yard that surrounds it, only worse because the simulacrum of a garden still remains. This applies in the life of a Christian who lets things slip. Soon our spiritual life is overrun by weeds of sin, then it is weak, then we look just like unbelievers or worse than unbelievers. This also applies in the life of the church in its hierarchy. When those who have been entrusted with the gospel, the doctrine and disciplines, let things slip, when they don't sow seeds in new souls by relentlessly promoting baptism, when they don't provide the sacrament of confession to the baptized, this church starts to look identical to the world around it, or frankly, worse. It becomes wild, overgrown, and ugly. While we are patiently waiting for the wheat and weeds to be sorted out, we are not idle. So I think it's significant that right after the wheat and weeds parable is the mustard seed parable, where we learn that the smallest of all seeds becomes the largest of plants. The truth is, ordinary fidelity, small acts of fidelity, can bring about enormous worldwide change. For instance, there's the obscure Wotia family in Poland who did what they were supposed to do. There was a mom and a dad and a big brother who lived their Christian life well, if not spectacularly well, and their example impressed the youngest member of their family, and he changed the world. John Paul is the reason I have a large family and know so many people who do. His work changed the map by hastening the end of the Soviet Union. He gave us the catechism, the mass, the newly translated mass at any rate, and the college I teach at through his Excordia Ecclesiae document. Another mustard seed was an Albanian dad who told his daughter, always share even the least bit of food you have. 
He died while she was young, but Mother Teresa never forgot his words and became the great saint of Calcutta, whose example inspired the world simply because she followed the small example of her dad. On an even smaller scale, I once got a call when we were living in Connecticut from someone who said, I know this sounds weird, but is it your wife who I see walking to mass with her kids down Whitney Avenue? Yeah, I said. And this person wanted to know how to get in touch with her or how to have her get in touch with her so that she could talk to her about personal issues she was facing in her life. So simply by walking to mass and being joyful with your kids, by a small act like that is a mustard seed that can grow into something great. Our faith may not have the excitement and novelty of the latest intellectual fad, but small fidelity can move mountains. As John Paul II put it, the purpose of the gospel is to transform humanity from within by making it new. Like the yeast which leavens the whole measure of dough, the gospel is meant to permeate all cultures and give them life from within, end quote. And when the church does the right thing, when we tap into that life principle that's at the core of humanity, when we tap into that power that surges through Isaiah's vision and in every field of wheat, amazing things happen. Look at the math of the early days. Our Lord started with 12 apostles and a number of disciples. By the year 100 AD, they had become 7,500 Christians, thereabouts. 50 years later, there were 40,000 Christians. The growth became exponential after that. By the year 250, there were 1 million Christians. And in 300 AD, there were 6.3 million. And in 350, there were 34 million. Okay, so the big jump at the end after 300 AD may have had something to do with Emperor Constantine saying, okay, guys, we're all going to do this. But the growth before that was pretty astonishing. And that kind of growth hasn't stopped in our day. The great untold story of the 20th century was the enormous growth of the church in Africa from 10 million Christians to 400 million Christians. And nearly all of that had happened after the colonial period ended. After decades of growth, again, after the colonial period, India now has five times as many Catholics as Ireland. And these are the people who are going out all over the world becoming entrepreneurs. China, with no colonial top-down approach at all, will soon have more churchgoers in America. So God's grace multiplies much faster than we give it credit for, and it always starts small. My favorite mustard seed is probably Juan Diego. Juan Diego shows that America can be transformed from small beginnings. Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared to Juan Diego and asked him to establish her mission and spread her image and have a chapel built. He complained that he was one man and said he was not up to the job of doing the work necessary to transform the culture in the way she said. Alaide of Guadalupe said, There are many I could send, but you are the one I have chosen. Because he was open to God's grace at the very time that huge numbers of people were leaving the sacramental system of the church and the Reformation was balanced by the huge numbers who started entering the sacramental system of the church in the new world meaning St. Juan Diego, by bringing us Our Lady of Guadalupe, had an even greater impact on the world than Martin Luther, arguably. That's how this works. We give Jesus a little, his growth principle takes over and gains a million miles. John Paul II said the greatest impact of Our Lady of Guadalupe is still in the future. 
He said, through her powerful intercession, the gospel will penetrate the hearts of the men and women of America and permeate their cultures, transforming them from within. So that's what we're working on. That's what Benedictine College is working on. That's what this podcast is working on. And I think the secret to the success of Christianity is that Jesus Christ himself became like a grain of wheat who gave his life, who died for the church, and then grew hundredfold in the church that followed. We know that the world's future isn't the future of weeds and the story of decay and the story of degradation and the story of closing more churches and the story of being embarrassed about the gospel and the story of the world moving on from this vision that it had in the past, this grand vision of Christianity. No, the future of the world is our story wedded to Jesus Christ as we continue the extraordinary growth of his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.